Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to host you on Buddy by Pansar Design. Thank you for making the time. It's a huge privilege. I, if you would start off by introducing yourself to our audience, please. Um, it's great to hear to be here, Deepa, and uh, and and thanks for hosting. Um, my name is Tom Eisenman. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School, where I teach entrepreneurship and study entrepreneurs. Um, most recently, um, raising the question, why do so many startups fail and, and what can entrepreneurs do about it? Loved reading your book. I think it has amazing lessons that every startup and every large company individual that wants to innovate or be an entrepreneur should read, uh, Tom. Lots of lovely stories, especially the six stories that you had were truly amazing and very insightful. Thank you. So Tom, one of the things we do at um, our podcast is start by talking about either a quote, a movie, or a book that really inspires you. So um, the quote is from the movie Blade Runner. Um, I'm not sure the movie inspires, I love the movie. I'm not sure I would say it inspires me. It's uh, in some ways that people know the movie. I won't spoil the plot for anybody who wants to see it now. Um, uh, an exploration of what it means to be human, um, um, as in so many science fiction movies by uh, sort of posing that question about androids. Um, but the quote I love from the movie is, the light that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. So, so this is um, um, an, an android that was reaching for um, supreme excellence and, and, and superpowers essentially, but but um, had, a had a shorter lifespan in the movie as a result of this. And, and the quote was shared by his inventor, the human inventor. Um, and uh, I, I love the quote because I think it applies to, um, to so many entrepreneurs um, you know, with, with grand, huge ambition. Um, and uh, uh, when you have that great ambition, you take great risks and um, um, often last half, half as long as a result. So uh, uh, the... Um, the, the, the great ambition also leads to great failure and, and that's fine. Um, we need entrepreneurs to try bold things and, and, and it's often not going to work, but um, points for trying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love what you're saying. Um, also in large companies, we talk about uh, starting slow to move fast. So, you know, um, in, in the world of moving quickly and startups, uh, you know, releasing products really quickly, um, one of the things I try to remind myself as I work with startups is, you know, scrappy is good, but crappy is bad. You know, there's such a huge emphasis on time to market and running really, really quickly, which I, as you said, is beneficial, but, you know, it's the balance that always counts, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, um, it's actually the um, most important piece of advice I give to MBAs who aspire to be founders. And, um, um, so, so one of the failure patterns in the book, I, I should say, by the way, uh, I'm guessing s some of your listeners are in India or in other Commonwealth countries. The book in um, the Commonwealth and Commonwealth countries in the UK is called The Failsafe Startup. Um, if you're in the US and Canada and other parts of the world, it's called Why Startups Fail. Um, sort of identical book otherwise, um, except for the title. Um, and one of the failure patterns is the false start. And uh, this is where entrepreneurs essentially um, get started too fast. They think they can see around corners. They have both in mind a, a strong vision of the problem and the solution. 
uh, and they start building. And uh, uh, they build before they do customer discovery research, uh, before they really understand whether they found a problem worth solving, um, before they've explored all of the many um, possible solutions to that problem. Assuming they found a good problem, there's still probably many ways to solve it, but they dive right in, they've got the problem, they've got the solution. And, um, and they start their engineering work and launch the product and um, it misses the mark. Not surprisingly, since there was no design work really done up front. And um, you know, that whole process might take four months to build it, um, launch it, figure out it's not working, figure out what to do next. And they've essentially um, made a bad trade um, by, by skipping four weeks of, pick a number, four weeks of upfront customer discovery work and crafting personas and prototyping different solutions and getting some feedback before you start serious engineering work. They've traded um, to, to save the four weeks, they've, they've wasted four months. And if you've only got a year's worth of capital in the bank as an entrepreneur, that's, that's a bad, bad trade and really boosts your failure odds. And what I see is that um, MBAs are particularly vulnerable to this, right? So engineers are too. I'm sure there are a lot of engineers listening. Engineers love to build. So what could be more natural than to start building? Because that's what you love to do. That's what you're good at. And even most of my MBAs are not technically trained, um, but they hear correctly that you need great product to succeed. How do you get great product? You get a great engineering team. How do you get a great engineering team? You leverage those networking skills you're so good at as an MBA to find a technical co-founder or scrape together enough money to outsource the work or you know, somehow they do it. And, and once, of course, the engineers are on board, they're expensive um, and you keep them busy doing what they know how to do, which is building. So, you know, as the non-technical founder, you rush the product to market. As an engineer um, who's a founder, you rush the product to market. And, um, and too often, um, um, the, the uh, entrepreneurs skipped the, the fundamental user experience design work that, that um, boosts the odds you found the right problem, the right solution. Absolutely. Um, I actually wanted to, uh, loved what you said, right, which is first identify the problem and see if it's a problem worth solving. Um, it, you know, reminds me about the Intuit CDI circles. It's like, you know, find a deep unmet need that you can solve well and build durable competitive advantage before you go off and engineer the solution. Um, you know, Tom, we at Pensar, we do um, a lot of pro bono work with uh, startups and accelerators. And when they know that we're designers, they pretty much want to whip out their product and ask us for design guidance. Like, you know, can you change the screen? How should this be different? And the first question we ask them is slightly different. We say, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And they want to show us the solution. And we're, we say, look, we know you're really proud of the solution, but can you help us figure out who's the problem, um, you know, who has the problem? What is it? What are they trying to accomplish? What is the problem? What is the barrier? What's the root cause? And um, often, I want to say almost out of 10 um, conversations we have, close to seven conversations, people are tongue-tied. They don't know how to answer that question. They talk about the capabilities that their solution will provide, but often don't spend that four weeks of time that you were talking about to really understand who is it for, what is the problem it's solving, 
And um, we're usually very dismissive of my brother has this problem or my uncle has this problem. Yeah. Um, that's great to build empathy, but you know, how do you go beyond that? So that's just yeah. wonderful. Um, what has been your experience, Tom, with um, you know, those four weeks, if we can sort of double click on, what has been your experience on people that have spent the time, but perhaps not find, found the right problem to solve? Um, so, you know, we've got a fantastic toolkit for um, when you have the general area you want to explore what to do. Um, we have, I think, as a field, less um, certainty about the right approach for, for finding the area to explore in the first place, sort of where do good ideas come from um, is a tricky question, right? Um, and so, so the very, very first state, the ideation stage, if you will. Um, and uh, I think um, um, once, you know, my, my experience is once an entrepreneur has the general direction, they're gonna get there. Um, and, I mean, you do get surprises, a, a, a very typical surprise is a team has done fantastic customer discovery work. They've validated an unmet need. Um, they've generated several solutions and started to explore them and, and, and have a point of view on, on which might work and why. Um, and then they discover a competitor um, that's doing the same thing. And uh, um, some entrepreneurs are crushed by that revelation. Um, and, and others, um, others take the attitude, well, that just sort of proves that I've, you know, good, another smart entrepreneur is moving in the same direction I have. And, you know, exactly. surely my solution will be different enough um, or there'll be room for two of us um, or, or, um, or I'll just execute better than they do. So uh, you, you do see some entrepreneurs quit at that point because, um, you, you know, they're, they're, they're depressed that, um, that a competitor is six months ahead of them. Right, right. Often um, we find that people believe that there is a problem, Tom, and don't spend that four weeks up front um, getting those validated learnings that, you know, in fact, there is that problem. Um, just a really quick, um, you know, case study of work that we've done at Pensar, um, we're working with connected trucks and um, you know the connected truck, this really large uh, company, doing really well in developed markets. But when it came to India, they were having a lot of challenge selling it, and the truck owners were telling them that it was too expensive. Um, and you know they engaged us originally to get guidance on what features and functionality should be removed from the connected truck so as to drop the price and make it more affordable. And um, they did the research. They went and asked people, they said, hey, why are you not buying um, you know, the truck? And the truck owner said it was too expensive. Um, but when we started, we asked them, we said, hey, is it okay if we go and do more deep research, like really try to build empathy and understand that entire ecosystem? We realized that there was a truck owner, there's a driver, there's a broker. There's so many people in the ecosystem that um, influence heavily the decision. So it turned out that the drivers didn't want to be monitored 
because often they were taking a, you know, a detour to see a family, relative, whatever that might be. And so they would break the connectivity, like physically break the connectivity of the con connected trucks. So they didn't want to drive those trucks. Um, and the broker felt like, you know, hey, what is this connected truck? It now has, you know, I'm being eliminated from the system if the connected truck knows where, um, you know, the supply demand can be connected so much more easily. And so they were feeling really threatened. Um, so the real problem when we understood it was the truck owner wanted to ensure that their truck was always generating revenue for them. That's something that they had in mind. And in India, you know, if you're going from city A to city B, sometimes the drivers were waiting with an idle truck for days and weeks waiting for a return load. Um, and, you know, the, the truck owner wasn't happy about that because they looked at their truck as an investment. But we had to finally figure out a solution that would not only satisfy the truck owner, but also that of the driver and the broker, so they could all sort of, you know, continue to coexist in that ecosystem. And luckily for us, that worked. We ran rapid experiments. Um, you know, the idea worked and the company is now exploring that and putting it into production. But so much of um, the research needs to be in depth and, you know, it has to understand the ecosystem. I think very few people understand that and they say, yes, we have to do research and they run off and do surveys. Um, that focuses more on what people tell you versus what they really do. What are your thoughts? Um, for sure. Um, I, I see surveys. Um, I mean, they are, can be a, a fantastically valuable tool, but I, I would say most innovators, most entrepreneurs um, use them too quickly. I mean, you, you, you really um, uh, can't, uh, you, you can't put a good survey in the field until you know the questions to ask. Yeah. And you can't know the questions to ask until you've done the sort of deep um, customer discovery work and, 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 and the kind of field work you just described. Um, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs use the surveys because they feel scientific. Um, they use them as a selling tool in their pitch deck when they're trying to raise money. So, um, you know, again, um, that, puts them in a position to sort of selectively mine the things they think are going to appeal to the investors, um, which, is, which is not intellectually honest. I mean, it, it, I, I suppose as long as you don't ignore the, the, the other data that's, that's not there, um, you, you may not get yourself into trouble. But yeah, it's um, uh, def definitely um, surveys are a problem. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's certainly, like you said, um, you know, we don't disquant surveys, they serve a useful purpose of trying to find out, you know, that qualitative need that you found, how per pervasive is it? Um, yeah. you know, Great for sizing the market. Um, you know, is, I found a customer segment, but how big is it really? Um, a survey can help with that. Uh, how often do people engage in these behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's, um, how pervasive, just exactly what you've said. So there's a place for it, but um, usually later in the process. That's right. Yeah, and I'm finding more, luckily for us, more and more of our clients are open to doing what we call mixed method research, which is, as you suggested, start with deep qualitative interviews and then ensure that, you know, the need that you've found, the, the segment that you've identified 
um, is large enough for a company to, you know, go in and say, you know, this is an interesting segment and we can actually make money out of this. Um, Tom, you are someone that, um, you know, has worked with startups, with product managers, with innovators. What, if you think about the intersection of understanding customers and failure, not only in startups, but large companies, uh, we talked about one, the four weeks. What else um, do you find as being common mistakes? Yeah, so um, the, the, uh, the false start um, is, is a problem we spoke about. The other problem I was surprised when I did this research to see, and it, it connects exactly to, to understand, understanding or misunderstanding customers, is a, is a failure mode I call the false positive. And so exactly like COVID testing, right? We have entrepreneurs and innovators are subject to false negatives and false positives, um, just as in the medical world. And um, false negative can be heartbreaking for an innovator, right? You think you had a, a great idea, um, you get a signal that it's a bad idea, you quit. Um, and then 18 months later, you see that your competitor has done that and it's working great or some, some other entrepreneur has gone public and raised a billion dollars um, with the idea that you killed because you got the false negative. The false positive can get you into big trouble too. It's um, you, you think you're moving in the right direction uh, based on feedback you've gotten from customers from the market, um, but you're not. Um, and the false positive manifests itself I would say quite frequently in a difference between early adopters and mainstream customers. So it is often, but not always the case that early adopters and mainstream customers have different needs. Um, and, and it's quite common for early adopters to be indicated than mainstream customers. They've got a powerful need. They've already been searching for solutions. Um, they're more comfortable um, self-provisioning a solution, right? Shoestring and bubble gum. I don't need your service. I can do it myself. I can put together the hardware and software components. And that's not true of mainstream customers. They need a, a, a solid um, solution with all the complements with high quality service. And, and of course, Jeffrey Moore um, 30 years ago described this uh, a version of this problem as crossing the chasm, right? Sort of difference in the needs of the, of the early adopters and the mainstream customers. It's real and it's out there. And um, I think entrepreneurs in particular and innovators are vulnerable to it because you need early adopters. It's how, it's how your new business gets going. Um, you should embrace them. You should meet their needs um, and you should listen to them. But you also should be aware if the mainstream customers have different needs. I and mean, a wonderful example of this is Dropbox. Um, I'm sure everyone listening is, is familiar. Um, the um, early adopters for Dropbox were software engineers with really sophisticated needs for file management, multiple devices, synchronizing across them, lots of collaborators, big, big files, um, moving around in different places where you have to get the files through firewalls and so forth. Drew Houston, when he launched the business, he, he applied to the Y Combinator Accelerator. He says in the application, he wants to create an application that's so simple to use. My little sister, can, who is not technical, uh, can figure it out. And that my mother can use it to um, basically store her recipes, her cooking recipes. And uh, Drew did exactly that. He, he created a product that was incredibly easy to use. The tagline for the product was, it just works. And um, 
but he he bet um, he understood the needs of the early adopters. He bet correctly that a product that was tailored for the mainstream would still meet the the needs of the early adopters, and it did. Um, it's not the only way to go, of course. I mean, there are other solutions to this problem. You can create a pro version and then later create, you know, hide some features um, for, for the mainstream customers. You can create two versions of the products. And the key point is um, you need to understand the differences right at the beginning and then have a product strategy for how you're going to handle the difference between the early adopters and the mainstream. But there's a lot of failure that relates to, um, to um responding too quickly and too, moving too strong in the direction of, of the early adopters. You know, once, once you've committed, once you've tailored your product, it's hard to change course. Absolutely. One other thing that um, I find, uh, Tom, and actually it annoys me quite a bit is I think people look at a lot of vanity metrics, um, metrics that make you feel good. So in a mobile app, it would be number of downloads. Um, you know, people brag about number of downloads. And I think that's a mere function of how well you're marketing your product. Um, and, you know, the true metric you should be looking at is what is the benefit the customer is getting out of the product? Are they actively using it? You know, DAU, MAU, those are things that you want to be looking at versus number of downloads. And I feel like being an entrepreneur myself, it's, it's a very lonely journey. Um, you know, you, of course you have your CXOs and your partners, but if you're the CEO, it is, you know, you're making decisions every day. And I feel like sometimes you just need a break and you look at those vanity metrics, but I believe every entrepreneur really knows that it is a vanity metric. Um, have you seen examples of this, the vanity metric itself? Yeah, um, no doubt about it. Eric, Eric Reese is of course, uh, the right. author of the Lean Startup, um, big on this theme, um, but yeah. Um, and, and again, it goes back to the pitch deck and what, what do you wanna put in there? I mean, we want so many graphs that go start from the lower left and quick, quickly and exponentially r rise to the upper right. And um, yeah, downloads that um, where no one returns, um, you know, sec second life, if we remember that from that, yeah. that product from 12 years ago. Yes. Um, you know, had basically a, a 90% bounce rate. Um, you know, people would come, sort of go into the world they heard about because it, it's all over the place, you know, cover of every magazine um, and they couldn't figure out how to use the product. So um, stay for five minutes, struggle with the controls and then leave and never come back. <laughs> um, I mean, the good news for Second Life was a eventually a million people figured it out and stayed and they, they were astonished to your point about daily active um, you know, in there every day and in there often for four to six hours a day. So, uh, and spending money. So, um, so um, um, it, 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 it's, um, I think they did focus eventually on the right things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people come back and they must be solving some problem and solving it well. But, um, but there always was the nagging doubt of, well, what about the, what about the 90%, you know, could, could we make the product easier to use for them? And, and 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 make it and understand the value it might create for them, and, and be able to show them enough value that they might stay and, and master the interface. Um, and they could never figure that out. And and, and figuring it out um, might actually destroy the experience for the early adopters. It's a, it's a very difficult thing for for a product leader. Um, Absolutely, those trade-offs are really tough. When you're talking about product leader, 
Tom, I know that um, in your MBA courses, you've tried to build design into your MBA program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's just fascinating. Yep. Um, uh, we, we teach design in the MBA. Um, my pride and joy these days is a program we launched three years ago called the MS MBA, the Harvard MS MBA. It's a joint venture between Harvard's um, business school where, where I teach and our engineering school. And the students get um, an MS in engineering and an MBA in two years, same amount of time it would take to get our MBA. And um, that program is all about design. We, we, um, um, our mission is to train future leaders of technology ventures, but, but we think a, a leader of a technology venture needs to understand design. And when I say design, um, I mean design not only of products, of course, that's crucial, um, but also business models, um, which can be designed, uh, and organizations, which must be designed, right? right? Every organization, there's trade-offs, um, who reports to whom, how does communication flow, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so that's been our focus. And, and, um, and we have a series that these students take the um, first year of our regular MBA program. It's a required curriculum, covers all the basics, marketing, finance, strategy, and so forth. And that's quite crucial. We think that every leader of a technology venture needs to know marketing and finance and technology management and organizational behavior and so forth. Um, but they, uh, and then in their second year, they take electives um, at both the engineering school and, and at the business school. But then we have five required courses, all of which have design right at the center. So um, the first course starts with, um, it's called design theory and practice. So we teach the theory and practice um, um, with, um, with um, in this case, um, uh, the course is brand new this year and uh, Philips, which is a company I'm sure many, many listeners will be familiar with, uh, brought in design briefs um, having to do with medical technologies that, that Philips could develop. And, um, and the students, which is two briefs sort of moved as designers do in, in very different directions um, with the Philips folks there as experts providing data, reacting, providing feedback. So, so the program um, gives experiences like that. Either they work on someone else's problem or they devise their own problem, their own startup concept. And, and, and we've, we've um, learned that the best way to teach design is through repeated cycles. So teach some concepts and skills, apply it to a problem, teach more concepts and more skills and apply to a, pro a, a problem. And, and they go through four design cycles over the course of the two years. Um, and, and so far, so good. Um, from the first cohort, a third of the graduates founded a company upon graduation, um, which is very high compares to in our regular MBA program, the comparable figure would be 8%. So um, yeah, we're, we're very proud of the work they're doing. That's incredible. And, and it's the first I've heard of an MBA program that has uh, a huge element of design incorporated, especially in the mandatory. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, in fairness, there's another one out there um, which everybody should know about, um, and it's it's been around longer than ours. Um, it's called MMM. Um, it's at, at Northwestern University, and it combines um, heavy focus on what I would describe as industrial, what you would think of as des industrial design. So um, the um, um, students learn a lot about design. They also get an MBA from Kellogg, which is top, top business school in the US. Right. Um, but the, uh, the problems they work on are more likely to be the problems of a Fortune 50 um, uh, company 
you know, a 3M or a, 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 a General Mills or a Kellogg or a company like that, important problems. And, and you still need to do really careful and, and thoughtful design work to solve those problems well. Um, ours, our, the difference with our program is we're, we're all focused on entrepreneurship and design. That's awesome. Um, Tom, the time just ran away and got away from me. I've had such a blast uh, speaking with you and getting your inputs on um, why startups fail and what understanding customers have to do with that. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Deepa. Thank you for hosting. Thank you.